I think in some ways you never can fully get rid of being an ugly American. Um, <laughs> that, that's what we are, uh, Americans. But the best that you can do is you can work really, really hard to try to overcome it or to lessen it as much as possible, you know, to put yourself in the shoes of the culture that you're writing about. And so in my case, that meant living there for a full year. It meant learning a language that only a handful of other people outside the tribe in the whole world speak. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today's episode is a bonus conversation with journalist Doug Bach Clark, who you might recall talked with me last week about his book, The Last Whalers, which looks into a subsistence hunting culture on a remote island in Indonesia. Doug wrote this book in the third person rather than the first person. That is, he tells the story of the whale hunters without including much of himself. After our main interview was done, Doug asked me if he thought his narrative approach counted as travel writing rather than straight reportage, and the extended conversation that resulted feels worthy of its own episode. Along the way, we mentioned such iconic journalists as Catherine Boo, whose book Behind the Beautiful Forevers is about the Indian city of Mumbai, and Peter Hessler, who's written critically acclaimed books about China and Egypt. We refer to my own Gonzo Thailand essay, Storming the Beach, which appeared in the Best American Travel Writing 20 years ago and formed the basis for episode 59 of this podcast. And we also talk about Doug's GQ story about John Chow, the American missionary who was killed trying to make contact with the Sentinel Islands of the Andaman Sea near India more than a year ago. Travel writing is a wide-ranging and often poorly understood genre, and half the fun of this conversation is just trying to make sense of it. We talk about how the story you tell about a place often depends on how long you spend there and how well you know the local languages, how it can get things wrong, but also how travel writing can make the world more comprehensible in a positive way. After Doug and I are done talking, I've also added an audio version of my essay, Why Travel Writing Matters, which appeared in the Chattahoochee Review Literary Magazine three years ago and underscores a lot of what Doug and I talk about. This episode is brought to you by the Santa Fe Writers Workshop, which is offering a variety of online writing classes this summer, including classes in memoir and poetry and travel writing. Details can be found at santafeworkshops.com, where you can sign up for their newsletter as well. You can also find that information via my show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. I've actually taught travel memoir classes for the Santa Fe Writers Workshop in the past, both in Santa Fe and in San Miguel, Mexico. I'm not slated to teach any online classes there this year, but if you're interested in such a class in coming months, let me know at deviate at rolfpotts.com. And if we can find enough people interested and available at the same time, I'll create a travel memoir class online for Deviate listeners. Again, just reach out to me at deviate at rolfpotts.com and let me know. All right, here's Doug Bach Clark and I talking about the task of travel writing in the 21st century. He starts by pointing out how his own book isn't in the first person and might be considered repertorial instead of a travel memoir. Let's listen in. You know, a lot of people would sort of think of The Last Whalers as a book of journalism rather than a book of travel writing. Um, I would mostly because there's no first person in it. Um, there's no, you know, it's a book about other people rather than about myself. Um, you know, that's not a hundred percent true. It obviously, you know, was just a finalist for the Lowell Thomas travel award and so on and so forth. But, you know, I think that 
you know, I would be curious to hear your thoughts on on what role sort of these third person uh, travel narratives have in the travel writing ecosystem, for lack of a better word. You know, I think there's a whole genre of it, you know, sort of the Catherine Boos of the world, um, you know, the Peter Hesslers, even though like Peter Hessler, you know, is, is does use the first person a lot and where those sort of people fit in, in, is, is that travel writing? Is it journalism? Well, that's the ongoing question, right? That, that any time you have a, a discussion or a debate about travel writing, you have the very sticky issue of trying to de- decide what, what travel writing is, right? And the conversations are so politicized these days that I'm sure that there's a certain realm of criticism that would say, well, if you don't include the I voice, then you are affecting a kind of objectivity that doesn't exist in real life. And by using the I voice, you are admitting to what your point of view is, and you're admitting that you are an American and you have these certain privileges and blah, 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 blah. I'm, I'm sort of an inclusivist when it comes down to it. I think it's, it's all travel writing to a certain extent. And I think the people you mentioned, Catherine Boo and Peter Hessler, are you know, just very, very well respected and very careful in their job as journalists. And I think that the, the reason, if any, that this kind of writing has a bad reputation is the old colonialist idea that you're going to go to a place like Indonesia or China or India, and you're going to speak on behalf of that culture without really doing a lot of reporting, you know, outside of the 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 gin bar at the uh, at the colonial compound. Um, and so, yeah, I guess that's any discussion does become an argument. Um, like, what did you? I know that you talk in, in the acknowledgments or at the very end of the book about a certain fact checking that you went back and you fact checked things with the Lamalarians themselves. What did you do to ensure that your um, ugly Americanness, for lack of a better word, didn't get in the way of the story you were trying to tell about these people? Well, you know, I think in some ways you never can fully get rid of being an ugly American. Um, <laughs> that, that's what we are, uh, Americans. But the best that you can do is you can work really, really hard to try to overcome it or to lessen it as much as possible, you know, to put yourself in the shoes of the culture that you're writing about. And so, um, you know, in in my case, that meant living there for a full year. It meant learning a language that only a handful of other people outside the tribe on the world, in the whole world speak. You know, I think it's about trying your best to earn the ability to talk to 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 describe as best you can another person's thoughts and feelings um and then as you noted you know at the end point you know i brought the draft version of the book back and read as much as i could to them so that they could then say oh you know like all right you describe me as like being fearful here or, you know, you describe this happening, but what really happened was this. And I think that the book is much stronger for it because, um, you know, it lets you further incorporate their voices. It lets you correct things that you um, got wrong the first time. Um, and it just lets it be a much more collaborative approach. You know, we, we can never fully get outside of our own heads, whether we're traveling in our own culture or another culture. But I think that the work of a journalist or the work of a travel writer is really to work as hard 
to get outside of one's head as much as possible. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, someone like writers I admire, like Catherine Boo, you know, put in them that maximal amount of work. Yeah, I, I think that one reason why travel writing had has had a bad reputation, it probably always will have a bad reputation. There'll always be different reasons to take issue with travel writing. But it's just the idea that that kind of fact-checking didn't used to be possible. You know, Marco Polo traveled to the far side of the world. He gathered empirical information. He gathered repertorial information, second- and third-hand information. He came back and wrote about it. He wasn't accountable to anybody he talked to, you know. And William of Rubric, there's other historical examples of people who may have been less diligent or people who, you know, talk about the people who hop around on one leg in Ethiopia. Well, there's no, there's no way you can guarantee that. You know, I think some travel writers used to talk about unicorns in Africa. Well, they were talking about rhinoceroses, right? They would talk about these beans that were these giant beans that tasted like honey. Well, they were talking about bananas, right? Um, sometimes they were right and sometimes they were wrong, but they didn't have the luxury of flying back around the world and, and, and fact-checking things. And so I think that this level of travel writing that you've done, which is really different from mine because I'm not a language guy, and there's a lot of I voice. You know, when I stormed the beach, there was a very meta level at which I was talking about experiencing other cultures, but then also how we as tourists experience other cultures and the superficiality with which we do that. And so maybe I would not be comfortable unless I spent a lot more time in a place taking the I voice out, you know, that in a way the I voice is just so that I can point to myself and say, hey, it's me, I'm a tourist, I'm a little bit ignorant, and this is why, you know, this is, I'm a dude, I'm an American, and just to remind the reader of that. And so there could be a spectrum through which um, the less time you spend in a more a place, the more time you really have to remind the reader that you're the person telling the story. The more time you spend in a place, the more time that you can fade into the background of a story and tell the stories of of the people that you interacted with. I mean, do you see any dangers in in writing a story in the style that you or Catherine Boo have written stories? Oh, absolutely. And I'm sure I'm sure that both myself and Catherine Boo, as much as I admire her, have gotten things wrong. But I think that, you know, I think that the point you make about time and about sort of trying to earn it is, is really, really what it, a lot of what a work like The Last Whalers or Catherine Boo's work is trying to do. Like you don't, um, you know, if you spend, I guess, you know, I have written occasionally first person narratives, you know, first person narrative of being the first person to kayak uh, part of the Irrawaddy River for men's journal and so on. There, you know, I'm only on that river once. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not getting to go and kayak through rebel-held territory twice. And so it's really about what my experience of that is and sort of what um, what insights that I can sort of grasp from that imperfect, uh, imperfect set of observations during that time. And then maybe even on a meta level, like, what those my observations about those observations say about the greater state of Myanmar during um, you know this period of of transition from a military dictatorship to a democracy. Um, whereas with I think with sort of these third person efforts, you know, which really which you know might be classified as deep dives, you know, one is trying to spend enough time there that it's not sort of one's subjectivity that matters as much, that one can, again, through earning it, through that hard work, 
you know, really say this is what happened in this case. And then this is what this person says was their feelings about, um, you know, about those events. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. And, and, and there's just so many complexities that come up, you know, like, why are we compelled to talk about the transition of military dictatorship if we write about Myanmar? You know, why why not just write about a love affair between the 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 blacksmith's daughter and the cobbler's son, you know? That in a way travel writing has always been a generalist pursuit. One advantage of travel writing is it's not you're not necessarily an anthropologist, um, but you have the the liberty to to tell the story through many different lenses. And the and and the liberty to tell third person versus versus first person, um, and then I think also one thing that distinguishes the Last Whalers is that it's not a tourist place, you know, even less so than a place like Sibirut, uh, and so so much of travel writing is literally wedded to the travel industry, you know, that literally um, I was sort of ignorant to this twenty years ago when I got into it, I didn't realize that so much of travel writing is literally funded by the travel industry, which can be seen as a bad thing, but also, well, you know, people want information about vacations. It's one thing to learn about another part of the world, but it's another thing to learn about a possible vacation you could make that actually might be beneficial to people like the the ones who live on Subaru Island. So it's it's this very complicated thing where on, on one side of the spectrum, you have the eye voice coming through to sort of remind people of the subjectivity of the tourist experience versus the other end of the spectrum, more like your book, where you have earned the right to be more third person about it. But then also you make decisions, even though you're not on the page uh, as Doug or as I, you're also making decisions to say, well, this is a story about globalization, right? This is a, this is a story that isn't just going to focus on certain human dramas, but try to connect them to a bigger theme, if that makes sense. Is that is that something, did you make a... Did you make a conscious decision to bring in sort of the globalization slash change angle to Last Whalers, or did you just feel that that you couldn't tell an honest story without bringing in that angle? You know, I think there's there that's a, a complicated question, and there's sort of multiple levels to it. So I think that any journalist who spent a year and gathered, you know, the same sort of set of information that I did from the Last Whalers would also sort of have to acknowledge the importance of globalization and change um, that's happening. I, I don't think that anyone could go there and write about La Malera without examining it partially through those lens. But as you point out, you know, each writer's subjectivity colors what story they choose, you know, what part of the story they choose to focus on. So I know that, you know, a lot of my stories have to do with how, um, you know, average people are swept, are being, you know, swept across the world and having their lives changed by the forces of globalization, by the sort of tectonic shifts of um, politics and history that we're all living through. And so <laughs> I, you know, I more than other writers, perhaps, who might take an environmental angle to the story or who might, um, I don't know, maybe someone who who's rigorously uh, poetic might, you know, decide to focus on, you know, religious aspects of their life. You know, I know that that's also something that uh, those sort of geopolitical and globalization themes are, are things that I am naturally attuned to. What about a story that would qualify as kind of a hybrid story? I mean, you wrote about John Chow and the Sentinel Islands, the, the American, young American missionary, sort of freelance missionary who got himself killed about a year ago. Um, 
Does that feel like a travel story to you? And how do you choose, how do you report that? And how do you, you know, choose to find a point of view and, and to sort of try and tell the story of a guy who made a really weird decision and ended up dead? I mean, there's, it's almost a philosophical question of, are all my stories travel stories or, or are none of them? Because I, I almost always write in sort of this third person, heavily reported style where I'm not a character or if I'm there for a brief moment, it's only because the only way I can get a reader into the scene is through my own subjectivity of the, of that, of that experience. Um, but it generally isn't about who I am as a person. Um, and so, you know, in, Again, I think it sort of goes back to that spectrum we were talking about at the beginning. The the John Chow story deals with one of the most fascinating places in the world, the Andaman Islands, um, where, you know, you have six hunter-gatherer tribes who live right next to modern civilization. Um, and it deals with a lot of the themes of travel of, you know, when a young American uh, goes out into the world, um, they're often looking for something. They're often looking for a certain experience that they feel is um, essential for uh, defining who they are. And they're also often looking to act on the world to change the world in some way that they view to be the correct way the world should be. So, you know, all of those criteria would fit the John Chow story. Um, and yet at the same time, um, it's also... You know, it's a it's an investigative piece. You know, there was, you know, the broad outlines of the story were known. But, you know, there was a huge amount that I uncovered in terms of how he did things and who who he talked to and how he invaded Indian authorities and then why he did it. So, um, you know, I, it could almost fall into multiple genres. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I uh, it's funny. I, you know, I came up, I credit traveling with cultivating in myself a lot of the journalistic techniques and attunements that I, I currently use in my in my job um, I think travel is absolutely essential in shaping me but I don't know some people I think have different uh, um, opinions about whether or not my work would be called travel writing well, an interesting parallel there is that, you know, you humanize the Lamalarians, you tell their story, but you also had to tell the John Chow story. And he's sort of a weird guy. In fact, I remember when that story first came out, there was this real viciousness against the idea of John Chow. Before they really even knew his name, there was this idea, well, here's a here's an entitled white male who decides he's going to convert these islanders to Jesus, not realizing that his diseases could kill them and maybe they want to keep onto their culture to the point that there was almost like this sort of Twitter disappointment that he actually wasn't a white male. He was, he was, he was half Asian. He was this John Chow guy. So I would think that there would be almost, it would be easy to make John Chow kind of a villain of this story. Um, was it difficult was there sort of a travel element to sort of figure out culturally who John Chow was as this sort of Chinese American Christian guy who was actually more religious than his father? And what duty did you feel to tell his story in an accurate and human humanizing way? I, you know, I feel the same very deep responsibility to tell anyone's story with the same accuracy and depth, whether it's the Lamalarians or John Chow. Um, you know, I think. You know, I think we're all 
sort of always traveling through life, always meeting strangers. Um, and we tell ourselves that we understand our country and the people next door and so on and so forth. But I think that if we were, were really to pay attention and really to um, look at the people we encounter every day and the things we encounter in our own hometowns, we would notice just how strange and um, and in some ways bizarre all of it is. And so, you know, my hope is to render everybody human if I write about them, to, to pay um, them equal honor and attention. Yeah, I guess it's always sort of the same mission. And one, one accidental benefit I, I've had from being based in Kansas when I'm not traveling is that Kansas is sort of understood by the rest of America with a very blanket, half-understood way. You know, there's sort of this political lens through which um, we understand our own provinces in the U.S. And so it's very easy to see what people get wrong when they write about a place like Kansas, a place that I, that I live in several months a year. And so that gives me pause when I go to other sides of the world and write about cultures that I only know through stereotyped or through political lenses. So where have you seen travel writing? And actually, I might, this might be a two-part question. What is travel writing to you? And where does it go wrong and how can it go right? Oh, that's a, that's a hard question. I, um, I don't think I would be able to answer it. Like, I don't think I would be able to give um, an exact definition of, of travel writing. Like in, in its own way, I would consider my, my own writing to be, um, to be travel writing. And, I, and I, I would almost think that any sort of in-depth and careful description of a place you know, of, of any place could be considered travel writing as long as it sort of both makes it simultaneously familiar and strange enough. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, it makes me think of the, the end of The Last Whalers where you're trying, where you explicitly say that the, a goal of, of, of this book is to make people think not only of the, the, the humanity of the people that you're writing about, but sort of for their own identity to melt away and see themselves on more human terms. Um, it's a very idealistic thing to say, but it, but it makes sense. You know, I think that there, there is an important duty, for lack of a better word, in travel writing to make other communities more human. Yeah. And I mean, I think that that's sort of why we do the act of traveling as well. You know, I think that, you know, we're sort of always looking for that shared humanity when we venture out beyond the boundaries of our own home. Um, I think that, uh, you know, that's what we're looking for in every time we meet a stranger or even someone that we think we know fairly well. Do you use social media much? Are you are you uh, out in the online world much? Or are you are you pretty uh, brick and mortars in your life? <laughs> I'm not. I, I I pay attention to to certain things on social media that uh, influence some of the reporting I do, um, or you know the the Twitter debate about certain issues. But I I myself do not post much. Uh, I feel like I already have so much work and so much. Um, so many other words I need to write that trying to be a, an online personality would be beyond my abilities. Yeah. Well, I bring it up just because so much of the discussion on social media these days seems to dwell in abstraction. And the discussion, Americans have always been pretty bad at being aware of the rest of the world. 
But it feels like even sort of a pro- the progressive wing of America has become more narcissistic in the social media age where that, that sort of reinforces the need for good, concrete, not abstract discussion, reporting, and humanization of other cultures. But I feel depressed sometimes that we're sort of flattering our own prejudices even when we think we're being worldly. We're just sort of reminding ourselves of, an, of the American lens through which we see everything. I try to think of the work that I do as the opposite of Twitter. Um, I, like, I, I mean, I think partially social media structurally forces a, forces abstraction over in depth. But, you know, I'm not I also don't consider myself particularly smart in the moment. I don't think of myself as a, a marvelously fast thinker. But I do think that if I have time to cogitate and sort of really, really dig deep on subjects that I have the ability to pursue goals and pursue, you know, writing certain things for just a a lot longer than many other people would find interesting. And hopefully from that, that's sort of where my added value to the conversation comes. What do you see as the future of travel writing? Because we live in an age where your Lamellarian friends could maybe have an awesome Instagram account that depicts the whale hunt in certain ways. And, you know, like I'm doing podcasting now, which I didn't do 20 years ago when I did Storming the Beach. And it's maybe less repertorial, but it, well, I guess it is, and in some ways it's more repertorial because I'm talking to other people about their experiences. So again, keeping in mind that you can't see what your Lamellarian friends will be doing in 20 years, let alone what the, the media will be like in 20 years. Do you have any prognostications of where travel writing might go or should go in the next generation? I really hope that it keeps, that it that travel writing or travel media as it evolves, keeps its focus on, you know, capturing that shared strangeness and similarity in the human experience. Um, You know, I think that as the world gets more interconnected and as it gets more, um, as it gets more, every, as everyone has a smartphone, in some ways it will seem like we're losing the sense of difference and that we're all becoming more similar. We're all using TikTok. We're all using eating McDonald's. We're all doing X, Y, and Z. And yet I think that those things are mostly superficial. I think underneath it, there are deeper and more important similarities and differences. And I hope that just because we can hop on Instagram and and go see what's happening in La Malera, we don't take that for truly understanding what it's like to actually be there and that the ability to just sort of hop on our computers and virtually go somewhere doesn't supersede the just incredible act and um, gift of actually being able to get out and go and experience it on our nerve endings in person. I'm with you there. And I, I think really, and you can disagree with me, but I think the core of travel writing, which is really the opposite of a lot of social media hot takes you see these days is the willingness to be humble and the willingness to listen. Um, are there any other virtues you can think of that, that we, that are the exact reason why we should do in-depth travel writing as opposed to the, the noisier world of social media reportage? 
You know, one one thing that I love about first person travel writing, and I, and I and I hope I didn't come across sort of before about being down on it or you know sort of favoring this third person really in depth, um, you know, extensive long term deep dive, is is that like the first person of travel writing always acknowledges what it doesn't know. And I think that that acknowledgement of what we don't know is just so important for living in today's world. You know, the hot take economy or the hot take sort of media economy, the whole certainty that you noted sort of always being flashed on social media, I think obscures a pretty fundamental fact about human existence, which is that really so much more of it is a mystery than we're ever able to acknowledge. We sort of have to come up with these explanations for ourselves in order to be able to function. And so, um, you know, I, I think one of the miracles of travel writing is just that ability to constantly be reminded of how little we know. Um, and, and to have that foregrounded every time we wander out in a place that's unfamiliar. All right. As an extra bonus to the bonus conversation you just heard, here's an audio version of my essay, Why Travel Writing Matters, which was first published in a literary magazine three years ago and underscores a lot of what we just talked about. This essay makes an argument for first-person narrative perspective in a way that might seem counter to Doug's third-person approach in his book, The Last Whalers, but I think my argument is nuanced enough to make room for any narrative point of view that takes careful reporting into account. Here it is. Why Travel Writing Matters, an essay by Rolf Potts. Travel writing is important because it humanizes distant places. Unlike standard journalism, it doesn't pretend to detached objectivity and it doesn't follow the panic-driven war-slash-disaster tropes of the 24-hour news cycle. Instead, it uses a personal lens to delve into the nuanced realities of daily life away from home, finding human commonalities as it explores cultural differences. Much travel writing doesn't live up to that ideal, of course. Some travel writing inevitably veers into self-absorption or dumb generalizations when it encounters other cultures. And much of what is characterized as travel writing these days is essentially consumer information for vacationers, where to go and how to get there and what to see and do and buy when you get there. That's fine, I suppose. Most travelers benefit from authoritative guidance and tips. But the best travel writing is a tentative inquiry into other places, one that seeks understanding and insight while being aware of its own limited point of view. Like all good literature, its nuanced specifics speak to universal themes. When pondering the question of what exactly qualifies as travel writing, one could ask the question, what doesn't qualify as travel writing? Indeed, one of the most enduring human narratives, one that predates literacy, is the story of the wanderer who leaves home, encounters the challenges of the unknown, and returns home to tell the tale. From the epic of Gilgamesh to the imaginative fiction set in Oz, Narnia, or Westeros, travel has always been a literary mechanism that incites struggle and learning and change. As for fact-based travel writing, many of the tropes we still associate with the genre go back at least to Herodotus's histories, which used on-the-ground inquiry and reportage in an effort to make admittedly imperfect sense of Near Eastern cultures for a Greek audience. For more than 2,000 years, from Jean Kian to Ibn Battuta to the far-flung wanderers of the British Empire, the implied task of travel writing was to describe the customs and idiosyncrasies of faraway people and places. 
Travel writing was a key source of information about the outside world and influenced not just exploration, science, and commerce. It also influenced the history of ideas and literature. It's easy to see the influence of travel writing on Don Quixote or Robinson Crusoe, but its DNA can also be found in the Fairy Queen and the Tempest in the King James translation of the Bible. By the 19th century, as railroads and steamships and telegrams were shrinking the world and making it more knowable, the mission of travel writing slowly began to shift into a more personal direction. Over time, scientific description of distant cultures was less essential than the author's first-person account of traveling within those cultures. Alexander Kinglake, Mark Twain, and Isabella Bird popularized this narrative approach near the end of the 19th century, and by the end of the 20th century, the most popular travel books blended first-person reportage with the memoiristic evocation of the traveler's inner life. Literary travel writing still resides in the overlap of reportage and memoir, and some of the most memorable recent travel writing, think Jan Morris or Pico Iyer or Orhan Pamuk, isn't about the act of physical motion so much as the task of making sense of a single place or reflecting on the complexity of human experience amid a world in flux. In a time when academic disciplines are hyper-specialized and foreign correspondents fixate on wars and crises, travel writers are allowed to digress, to take things slow and use a variety of interpretive lenses. A good travel book doesn't just mix reportage and memoir. It might blend geography with gastronomy, history with humor, sociology with spirituality. At its best, it's about a perceptive author using a mix of narrative strategies to make sense of both the place and of herself as the person experiencing that place. I think every travel writer worries about trying to depict a place without knowing it properly. I know I do. And I'd be suspicious of any travel writer who didn't struggle with this process. This issue has, in fact, become somewhat of an in-joke among travel writers over the years. When D.H. Lawrence visited Florence in 1921, Norman Douglas poked fun at him for the fact that he was, quote, vehemently and exhaustively describing the temperament of the people within a few days of arriving there. The best anecdote in this regard comes from the 19th century philosopher Herbert Spencer, who wrote about a French traveler who was ready to write a book about England three weeks into his visit. Three months later, the Frenchman decided he wasn't quite ready yet, and after three years, he determined that he had no authority whatsoever to write a book about England. Of course, nobody ever really knows a place well enough to write about it with ironclad authority. This includes historians, anthropologists, and the people living there. Orhan Pamuk's book about his hometown, Istanbul, has been hailed as a masterpiece, but I'd imagine his own neighbors might take issue with his sour, sentimental, cerebral take on their city. Pamuk, a novelist and academic, tends to view his city through the lens of art and literature, whereas a Turkish butcher or banker or beautician might view the city in a completely different way. My own 1999 take on Istanbul, Turkish Knockout, which recounts getting drugged and robbed in the city's well-visited Sultana Met district, is inseparable from the fact that I was utterly ignorant of the city when I arrived there. On reading it, one doesn't learn much about Istanbul in the socio-historical sense, but it does evoke what one part of the city was like for a certain overconfident American tourist. A lot of my early travel writing explored that tentative liminal space we occupy as travelers. Turkish Knockout appears in my 2008 book Marco Polo Didn't Go There, aside more lighthearted tales like Storming the Beach, which is set in Thailand, and Tantric Sex for Dilettantes, which is set in India. These humor stories are less focused on the essential nature of Thailand or India than in unpacking the overwrought fantasies we project onto those places. 
Both stories end with the realization of my own boneheaded naivete, and while other stories in the book go further to depict the local people I connected with as a traveler, I've always tried to make it clear that my perspective was less than perfect. As a writer, I'm not speaking for these places so much as I am recounting the ephemeral experiences of one specific middle-class American male in certain corners of these places visiting at certain times of year at a certain moment in history. I might bring research like history or literature reportage to help make sense of my experiences, as most travel writers do, but I make no claim to be authoritative. The implicit acknowledgement that a traveler is always operating from a specific personal cultural point of view has always been central to travel writing. Herodotus's histories purport to describe other lands and cultures, for example, but the author continually reminds the reader of his own repertorial doubts and limitations. Moreover, it's clear that he's describing the customs and routines of non-Greek cultures with the Greek sensibility for a Greek audience. In this way, histories reveals as much or more about ancient Greece as it does about the places it describes. So for as long as it has been around, travel writing invariably uses one cultural point of view to make sense of another, and any account, ancient or modern, colonial or post-colonial, that pretends to objectivity is clearly blind to the inevitability of its own biases and preconceptions. It's interesting to consider that the very notion of journalistic objectivity arose in the 19th century around the same time that, in countries like Britain, some forms of travel writing were being used as a literal pretext for colonizing other cultures. I don't want to dismiss journalistic objectivity with too broad a brush. The idea was to promote more ethical, empirical reporting. But when you travel to distant lands and omit the I from the account you saw, it implies an objective authority that doesn't exist in the real world. Part of the push to make foreign reportage more objective was pegged to the excesses of Romantic-era travel writing, which proved that impressionistic reverie could be just as unreliable as subjective fact-gathering when trying to depict other places. So that's the tricky ground a travel writer must navigate, including enough personal perspective to orient the reader with her subjectivity while being disciplined enough to move beyond the self and report meaningfully about people who live in the places she's visiting. In the 21st century, we no longer need travel writing to teach us about other places, especially when the people who live in those places are documenting their own lives in real time with videos, social media posts, and personal essays of their own. But travel writing was never really about pure reportage. It's always existed in the vicarious tension of what a writer from one culture experiences and attempts to comprehend when visiting another. Admitting to confusion and discomfort and naive excitement isn't just what makes travel writing entertaining and relatable to the home audience. The very authority of a travel narrative, unlike the big picture sweep of narrative history or social science, lies in the self-declared limitations of its own first-person perspective. The core task of travel writing, that is, going slow, experiencing, listening, seeking nuance, and reflecting, hasn't changed much over the years and won't change all that much in the future. Often travel writing is a matter of getting past your own preconceptions and being thoughtful and honest about what you experience. This naturally applies to getting past crude cultural stereotypes, but it also means avoiding performative sensitivity and the over-idealization of other cultures. As I've suggested before, narrative point of view counts. Remind the reader not just of what's being experienced and reported, but also of who is experiencing it and who is reporting it. 
This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to the print version of my essay, Why Travel Writing Matters, as well as Doug Bach Clark's book, The Last Whalers, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.